Hello, listeners, and welcome to Small Talk. This is a nurse-led podcast where we explore the Boston Children's Hospital community through conversation. My name is Denise Downey, and I'm the Nursing Professional Development Specialist from the Emergency Department at Boston Children's Hospital. And with me today are my colleagues and partners in conversation, Teresa Shannon and Kate Donovan. So today, we have the honor and the pleasure of our featured guest, Annie DeCorsia, who is the Security Operations Supervisor at Boston Children's Hospital. Annie, thank you so much for joining us today. This is fantastic. I know our audience is very excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. I'm very excited. Great. All right. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Annie. How did you end up at Children's? So that's a good question. So before I came to Children's, I spent a majority of my career at Fidelity Investments. I started there when I was just about 21. If I go back even further than that, people will find this funny. When I was 16, I had a job co-op. I was working at the Volkswagen Brookline dealership and they wanted more hours out of me. But I'm like, what do you want? I'm 16. I can't give you any more hours than I have you know, credit for. So they had to let me go. And I didn't take that very well. So on my way out, I kind of just took my shoe and I kind of punted the corner of the door a little bit, but I didn't realize it was attached to the glass display window where the showcase of cars are. And I looked at that and it sort of spidered up there and I went, I am in so much trouble right now. I can't even go home and talk to my father. So it it led me right over to Beth Israel Deaconess when it was called Deaconess Hospital. And ironically, I found out that I worked with Bob Ryan and them before I even knew that they were Bob Ryan and them. But so I ended up over at Deaconess as a tray passer, um, spent about five or six years at Deaconess Hospital. I went from tray passer over to uh, patient transportation, and then I went over to the purchasing department and became a, a med surge buyer over there, and then left and went on to Fidelity. Started at Fidelity at an early career. So after I left Deaconess and grew up a little bit, I went on into Fidelity, and I was there from 1991 up until 2014. I did take a little time off there because I had my girls. I had my first daughter, and I went back to work right away, like a trooper, saying, "Hey, I got this." Um, that was the first time that I, I was able to prove to myself, "You're not all that. You got nothing here. Everything you have is at home." So I left. I gave my notice at Fidelity and told them I'll be back. So I came back three years later after I had my second daughter um, and then continued my career from probably about maybe 2009 up until 2014. My position was eliminated. It was uh, transferred to Texas. And I thought, I'm not really Texas quality. (laughs) So I decided, you know what, I'm going to take some time and try to figure out what to do next. I was kind of a, a lost bird. I did get a call from one of my colleagues who uh, started working for Securitas, and uh, he actually had a a position that Boston Children's was developing at the security department level of a training manager, and they wanted someone to come in, and they felt like, hey, you came in with um, some background that was interesting to us. So sure enough, I came in, I interviewed, um, and became the training manager at Boston Children's in 2014. So I stayed in that role probably for about four years and then moved on to become the supervisor of security operations and moved in-house with children's rather than securities. But here I am. Wow. And (laughs) what were the differences really between the BI and children's? Gosh, you know, I, I think I was so young there and I think I was just more into the excitement of having a job and a paycheck. Like I, I could take something home that had some sort of sustenance to it. If I look back now, are you asking like what I see now versus the two? Because I'll tell you, it's it's apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. I think I went over there at one point. We had a, um, 
a woman, an elderly woman sitting in our lobby at Children's who after a little bit of time with her and, and working with her, I determined that she was at the wrong hospital. Um, she really had some signs of dementia. So we, I ended up walking her over there um, arm in arm. We walked over to BI and I got her settled. But as I'm sitting in there and waiting and looking around and kind of, you know, taking her from one place to another, I realized just children's, the color, the beauty of, and the livelihood and the, the life you feel when you walk into our lobby, you miss that when you go to the other facilities, everything is that very basic beige. And I found that that really is what adds to my temperament every day at children's, I, the, the colors, the sounds. I mean, the kiddos are definitely the meat of everything, but I think it's just knowing that there's so much color and liveliness and just the presence and the infrastructure of children's. It's just so inviting. It really is. I have to agree with you on that. I feel like pediatrics is, you know, something unto itself and you really can't compare it. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very inspiring. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I, I, I want to look for the purple elevator and I want to know where the blue, blue elevator is and follow this. And, mm-hmm. you know, you get into another facility and they're like, oh, you need to go to the fab building. It's down the end of the hall. Take it. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, and every hallway looks the same um, yeah. with ours. It's like, you know, it's, it's like Candyland. <laughs> when you walk in there, you can kind of find your way around by just following a color. It's yeah. And like, when you tell somebody that you parked near the giraffe, they don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I had one guy that looked at me, came in and I, you know, my Annie humor, he goes, Hey, do you happen to know where the rainbow uh, elevator is? And I, I said, there's a rainbow elevator. And he goes, Oh, there, there isn't. And I went, well, maybe it's near the giant purple people eater. And I don't think he knew at that moment. I was like, I'm kidding, sir. I go, I don't know. I go, I don't know what you're looking for. Let's, let's speak. But if everyone knows the colors, it's easy to direct people, you know, and you just pull that blue carpet around the corner on your left hand side, you'll see the blue elevators, you know, where else, where else could you work that you'd say you go up the musical steps and take a left. That's right. And you'll find the (laughs) gift shop. (laughs) Right. I'm curious, Annie, along your professional journey, do you have role models or people that stand out in your mind that have inspired you along the way? I do. Definitely. Kate, you know, you're over there in the corner and I can't not just give you props there. But Denise, you're right there too. As far as, you know, having fun at children's, I think you were one of the first people I got to do a lot of drills with, um, which was awesome from the Ebola drill to the, you know, we just, the active shooter stuff I've done. And it's just been, it's been a good partnership. My role model, definitely my dad. He's my heart and soul. I unfortunately lost my dad about three years ago, actually four years ago now. And I lost my mom a couple of years ago. So yeah, my dad, they both ring and shine through me every single day. It's part of my ritual. When I wake up in the morning, it's a good morning to them. I owe them. And I think at times my father was a clinical psychologist. So that's why he had a private practice and started the Boston Institute for Psychotherapy years ago. He was my role model. He was the one that taught me that, you know, you're going to have to put some hard work in. Nothing's Mm going to be handed to you. And if you really want the most out of something, you got to put the work in to really feel the the, the pride at the end of why you got there. He was the one that drove me. And everything I did, he gave me so many multifaceted ways of looking at things, which helped me with anything and everything that I do. It's how I dissect problems. It's how I work with my kids. It's my relationship, my dynamic with anyone and everyone that I encounter. He comes through and I I think that's what makes my job so special to me at Children's is because I feel like I have that presence and, and certain circumstances require that. Um, when I'm usually the first person that people see when they come in, 
either they're pissed off or they're happy or they're nervous or they're, you know, um, uncertain of where they're supposed to be or why they're there or what's the difference between this or even just something that could be more of a a safety issue for them. Mm -hmm. So it really helps a lot to come in with multifaceted approach. What a great tribute to your dad. I would have loved to meet him. He was amazing. And I, I, this is the time where I see this crazy behavioral health crisis we're in and I need him. He's the one I've been wanting to go, Hey dad, this is what I encountered today. Did I handle it the right way? And now it's, it's his own fashion of kind of looking down going, how do you think you handle? And that's where I hear him, the reverse psychology that he always played on me going, you know, you know mm-hmm. how do you think you handled it? So I have to sit down and kind of self-solve mm-hmm. you know, and, and figure out what I'll do differently and how I'll be a better person tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the behavioral health crisis. We'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah. what I wanted to do is circle back for our listeners who might not know or remember. So Annie mentioned that she is a participant in hospital videos. So I wanted to share that Annie and her daughter, Kate, right, were stars in the Ebola video, the Ebola training video, as well as the active shooter video that everyone sees in their net learning on a yearly basis. So I just have to give you a shout out for that. Oh, thank you. Great job you did. That was a great, that was a great time filming. And I'll tell you, the, the amount of training partnered with emergency management, we were able to drive that out there to so many departments and so many campuses and tabletop exercises. And I think it really gave everyone that feel of security that they needed. I think even to revisit that again, I think that's part it's part of my 2022 goals is to get back out there and do a lot more of those in-service trainings with these departments because the times are calling for it, honestly. The times are calling for it and people are feeling nervous inside and outside of work. Yeah. And it's, it's a good time to tap into people and sort of ground them a little bit and give them some tools back in their toolbox. So in your role as a supervisor, really, what is your typical day like? That's a good question. I think the second I leave my car in the garage and start walking, that's the first question I ask myself. I wonder what today holds. <laughs> it could be the second I walk out of the garage and I look and there's a, a line of my officers standing right there, um, standing presence for a code red. This job has taught me so much. It's humbled me. It's educated me. It's grounded me. It's it, There's so many things that it does to a person because it wakes you up. It's reality. And you're, you're responding to life. When we see the certain things going on, my job could start with just nothing but a bunch of Hollywood square um, movies today. And I'll be nothing but Zoom calls all day. Then suddenly something could pop off. It depends on the day. And I really wish, and I think this is what makes my job so interesting and so desirable to me is that there is no copycat day. Every day is something different and every day requires a different skill set to be pulled out to go, how does this work? So none of, none of my tools go unused because they have to be pulled out simultaneously. Um, Working with these officers, my feeling is I, you don't forget where you come from. Yeah. And, and I think that that's sort of the, the message I resonate to them is, you know, I'm out there in the field with you. Some of you are still here that I've trained years ago um, so I'm right alongside you. I'm I'm at I'm at bedside. I'm de-escalating with you. I'm working with you. I'm I'm learning from you. I'm cr- taking critiquing from you, but I'm also critiquing you because you're never too old to learn. And I let a lot of these officers know you, you, there's never a day where I can't be reminded that I forgot something or you know good call. 
didn't even think about that at the time. And that's why you're so good at what you do. And I think that they look at me as their den mother at times because it's sort of the, you know, the pep talk. I'm either going up, going fixing their collar pins or I'm, where's your radio? Or, oh, you need another jacket. You got juice thrown on you. I'm sorry. Come with me, you know, or little things that just, you know, or you need additional. I'm a supervisor that will stand up for you um, when I feel that certain things have happened. But if I also feel like I need to call you out on something, it's a training opportunity. It's time for me to bring you back in and go, hey, here's my observations. Here's what I took away from this and just want to help you move from here. Um, so it's good. It's a it's a good, good method of, of my madness. <laughs> yeah. I love how you said no day is ever the same. That really uh-huh. takes quite a strong person to be able to adapt on the fly. How is that for you? Or or how could you really promote that and share that with our listeners who are also trying to be like that? Because I know the staff in the ER are like, you have to be like that. Yeah, it's overwhelming. I, I won't I won't lie. There are days where I'm I'm in the mood for it. And there are other days where I'm like, I don't have the time for this right now. <laughs> you know, or right in the middle of the hot flash, and I'm like, okay, I gotta get my game on here. You know, something funny or like but I think because it's it's different, I think in, in, in just being able to, to roll with the punches, I am high energy. I think that comes with it. I do have a couple of times, it's actually, this is just this week alone. One of my officers stopped me. He goes, you know, Annie, I've never seen you mad. No. And I said, I, I hope you never have to. <laughs> I try not to let things get to me. And I think that's what the big thing is, is really kind of accepting and understanding the things you can't control. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, Even if you feel and you're looked at as a pro at what you do, hey, she's an expert at this. You know what? I may not have all the answers or if they're there, I may not be able to reach them right now. And I may be looking to you to kind of help me here, you know, like something I'm trying to say something and they don't really. So I, I think it kind of comes with just being high energy, but also knowing that, you know what, being able to ask for help and saying, I don't know at times, or um, I need assistance. I always tell the officers, we never want to say, I don't know, but I can find someone that can help you. Um, It's really kind of knowing your team, building your network and don't being afraid to ask for help. You know, it's it's really a big deal. Yeah. And and, you know, for me too, I, I also find myself at times I can be a control freak. I want to do it myself, move away. I got this. And, yeah. and it, it took a lot moving into my role as supervisor and, and hopefully beyond. I hope this isn't where I stop in, in the sense I, I plan on retiring at children's. That's my world. It's I want to stay here until I'm done. And I don't even know when I'll be done because it's just kind of, I love to work. I don't do well with idle hands. I like to be busy and be productive. So just to switch gears a little bit, I wanted to just talk about the COVID pandemic because we all know it completely changed the landscape at Children's. So many things changed. I'm just wondering, can you think back to the early days of the pandemic and just tell us what that was like for you? Because you were like, you were right in the middle of it all. And I feel like, you know, you and your team just made sure that not only were patients and staff safe, but your own officers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how was that? It was crazy at first. Every five minutes, the, the process was changing. You know, okay, we need to have it set up this way. No, no, no. We don't want you doing that way. Okay. Now we want people to tap in their badge. Now you have to ask all the symptoms that became, and then we had the, the masking stations. I think that was when Rachel Morano and crew decided to label me as the COVID cop. Because all I was doing in the lobby was running around going, what can I do? Where am I? Where am I supposed to be? And 
you know, and every so often turning around and trying to teach Sammy Fenwick covering a table, teaching her how to say all the symptoms and, and she, you know, and, and, and that people really need you to kind of say the symptoms, Sandy. I go, so fever, cough, difficulty breathing, sore throat, muscle aches, chills, or sun loss of taste or smell. Can you say that, Sandy, please? And she's just like laughing, going, Annie, what, what? So and then every five minutes having to go and update the symptom cards or update the visitation cards, or these have to be changed out or go to the command center and pull all the, the symptom cards and replace them with these Steve sending you new ones. And I'm like, okay, I got more coming. And I'm, so it was just kind of going back to what you said is being, being adaptable to that change and knowing that you, I can't control any of this, mm-hmm. even though it felt so out of control. Um, and really trying to work with the officers who were really, this was, um, a lot of them are young. This was different. This kind of abrupt change in, in your way of life and your career was, was a little deafening for some of them. They were just like, wait, what? And I go, you got to sit here and you're going to have to screen people. And each time I come over, I got to constantly go get the drinks away from you. You can't have these here. You can't have gloves on. Give me the gloves back. You can't have gloves. Purell your hands. You can't. And, and so I felt like I was just constantly, they were just like, Annie, what do you want us to do? And I'm like, did you happen to know that? 400 masks fit inside that masking station box right now. I go, that's how bad my life has gotten. Eight boxes of masks fit inside that masking station. And there's only seven in there. Put another box in there. Just Just trying to stay ahead of it and really meet all the needs of the business. Because from leadership all the way down, these requests and demands were coming. And you had to be ready for them. You couldn't say no you knew that you had to kind of roll with the punches. So I tried to make as much fun as I could because everything is fun in my world. <laughs> so I, the, the symptoms. So I, when I was at the screening stations, I found like that was really funny to look at families when they came in. I'm like, hi, welcome to children's. What brings you in today? And they're like, oh, we have an appointment. I'm like, okay. Fever, cough, difficulty breathing, sore throat, muscle aches, chills or something. And by the time I got to the third symptom, they're laughing hysterically. And I'm like, was that a no? Yeah, no. And I'm like, you know. Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Is there anything you can answer for me? Something. And so they were laughing and it was like, you knew they were stressed. They knew we were stressed, but trying to add levity to it. And each one of those family members to this day that are still coming in, those are the ones that stop and go, so good to see you. They <laughs> you made the you. pandemic simple for us coming in here. Each vaccine we took our kids in, each you know COVID shot, each COVID test, whatever it may be, each day. You no. Know? One of the things you said a little bit earlier is that you're absolutely right, and I think people forget about this. You are one of the first faces that people see when they walk in, and I think as employees, sometimes we forget that as we're navigating from inside the hospital or whatever. It's like that person might be the first person that they see here, and if you can stop pause and help them. Well, that's what I laughed when they did that last thing in December of my, my, how can I help? So okay. now everyone walks up to me going, Hey, how can I help? I'm like, all right, Isaac, you know, um, that's what I feel like I always say to people when they're standing in the lobby and you know, the look, cause they're like doing these, are you looking for something? How can I help? And I find myself saying that. And I'm like, how can I help? Can I direct um, so- you somewhere? Can I direct you something? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then you get the ones that come in and, and it, we're talking about all of our compliant visitors, all of our happy visitors. And then, right. you know, there's the ones that things changed abruptly when all of a sudden the city shut down. Little corrective measures that we had to take because our Starbucks was the only Starbucks in the city of Boston that was open. So people were online ordering to our Starbucks, trying to get drinks to go out into Boston with. And we were like, 
no, we're having to like stop people going, we're, we're not serving the city of Boston. We are Boston children. So we had to kind of scale that back so that they couldn't order online at children's. They couldn't order those drinks. They couldn't take out food. Mm-hmm. donations, things that people used to come in in droves and bring. I mean, even watching the soldiers come in, that was tough when the National Guard came. It was so watered down. I, that was the one time where I could stand in the lobby and cry and not feel guilty. I was just like, oh, that's so be happy every year but we really we all took a hit this year and last year with that whole whole craziness so when the national guard did come Mm. can you just elaborate on that a little bit how was that for you and your team very helpful we needed support because as you all know with the craziness in the emergency department our patient observer numbers have gone through the roof there alone high acuity patients have gone up so we're up to 10 patient watches at a time it made it tough to staff because we also had to keep in mind that our own people were trying to stay healthy and you know we're masking these officers and papering these officers and gowning these officers and they're sitting on covid positive kiddos we have to be mindful We can't keep them 100% safe and we may end up losing one or two at a time and sometimes maybe a a whole shift may be affected. So I think it was nice when uh, when the governor decided that they were going to deploy these these additional bodies to us. And it was nice on evening shift, particularly because it was really helpful to have just the National Guard there helping doing the screening and the meeting and greeting and allowing our uh, two additional officers to be out in the field and on foot and supporting the team. Um, Really, we just sort of divided and conquered that really helpful. Were you ever scared? No. 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 No, I mean, scared of? I don't know anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, when, I think when you, see, when you see officers in the National Guard uniform, yeah, you know, it sends a little different message when you're in yeah. a pediatric institution. It does. I think because it was announced and and made clear um, by the governor that this is what they were going to be deployed to do. Um, I actually just this last week had seen um, an ambulance company coming through and one of the personnel was a National Guard fully uniformed helping with their their transport. So I know that that we're still grabbing from these these resources as much as we can. And I, I think if I saw the National Guard standing in the lobby, standing there and 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 not doing anything that would probably heighten my awareness a little bit because it would be like why are you here mm-hmm. now are you extra eyes are we looking for something because that mm-hmm. i guess it depends on what we're doing with that body and for me i knew with that body being at the at the stations it was a lot easier to to see them mm-hmm. um and know why they're there and then people started getting used to seeing them and it was easy mm-hmm. but we did have a few people that felt <laughs> That they had enough chutzpah to challenge them too. I thought, wow, you really, you must feel like you got your game on today to challenge like one in uniform. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Walk with that. Wow. But wow. yeah, they've been great. How many people do you have on staff during a shift? Uh, during a shift, it could be anywhere from 22 to 26 at a time. We have 150 officers at this point. Gotcha. And is that, that just on the main campus, Annie? Just the main campus. Yep. Mm-hmm. We have people down at two Brookline place. Yeah. So you got to figure and they're rotating and we have, you know, they're on every other weekend. It's a 24 hour, um, you know, 24 seven operation. So there are people that are in certain shifts. So they may every, every other weekend they'll work. And that's how we keep rotating. And I, I'll tell you, I give props to our, our supervisory team. They, they do it well. It's a tough puzzle to manage, but they, they do it. Sometimes, like you said, it takes someone that can sit back and go, okay, I got to be adaptable to change. 
because anything could call, you know, the cops office could call and say, hey, we're making this change and we're applying. We're, we're doing the best we can to accommodate. I think it's a really important number for people, for our listeners to hear. Yeah. I think sometimes we think there's just resources galore when it comes to just call security. Call yeah. Security. Yeah. And, and, and I like love that. Yeah. You know, or, or you got someone that's, you know, doing something. You're like, I just need about six officers to come stand by. And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. On my way. Let me go see if I can grab six out of the field. Somewhere. <laughs> so, but it's, you know, I think that's the other class that I've been teaching a lot too, is just giving people a little introduction to security. I really feel um, that we have a presence here and a lot of people don't get to see that unless, of course, something happens. And I like to be that sort of face that gets in there and says there is some pleasantry behind it. And let me tell you a little bit about my team, what you can expect from us and what we expect from you. And there's certain things, your eyes and ears out there. This is how you identify the levels of security, the, the stripes on the pants, how you know who a supervisor is versus who a standard officer is, how you summons us to you how a panic button works, you know, who responds, how we respond, um, little things like that, that really kind of help people understand that there are certain places, measures in place for you. Officers are out there doing their tours. I tell them it's not all the time just because that they, you know, we want to keep track of where they are. They're also out there keeping eyes and ears out there. They're up on the floors. We're trying to explain to people once you pass the main lobby, you've passed security. No, we're out there. Yeah. We're out there on the floors. We're everywhere. We're doing building checks and tours. And that also my message to the, to the staff is make FaceTime with some of these officers. These are the men and women that are coming to you when something goes south and you need us fast. So get to know the faces that are on your day shift or your evening shift or your overnight. Get to know your supervisors so you can call if you need something escalated. Um, little things that you sort of build that relationship. We're a touchable unit. <laughs> we definitely want to make sure people feel comfortable reaching us. <clears throat> Well, I did a surprise attack on them one night. I came in at midnight and I, I literally spent an hour getting myself dressed as much as I possibly could to look like a parent because the big joke between the team was you could never sneak in here. Remind me to show you the picture I have of myself. No makeup, no jewelry, <laughs> hair went up, baseball hat, oversized sweatsuit on, slides with socks. I wore a fake badge around my neck and I walked in and I wanted to make sure I could get in and and how did that go? They eventually caught me. I was able to get in and I went and hid. I gave them a little challenge and uh, I was really kind of testing their de-escalation skills. And, you know, how do you work with someone that's uncertain that may look frightened and unpredictable? You never know what I have on me. Don't come close to me. Um, little things. So they caught me up on Fagan 7. I was able to, uh, I pressed the panic button, ran and hid. They responded up there. It took them a little bit to find me. But then when they finally found me, they worked to get me out of that corner. And I think they were all a little angry when I found out it was me because... <laughs> They kept calling me, they kept calling me, sir. That's hilarious. That sounds like a special edition of Undercover Boss. It was just like that. So that they'll never forget the suspicious person at midnight. That's hilarious. (laughs) Was that like a one-off drill? Did you you do that? Yeah. Sometimes I, well, like I said, sometimes I have this sudden energy spurt. Like, and so I was like midnight, I'm going in at midnight tonight. And they were like, what? I'm like, I'm going in at midnight. So I I, I staged it. I let them know that I was coming in and I kind of had it all set up as, you know, and I think it's funny because a lot of them just say that they know my perfume, they know certain things. So I really had to, because one time I had come in to do a drill and they got up on the floor and they were like, Annie's here. And I couldn't, I, they hadn't even gotten to me yet. So I said, man, there's certain things I'm learning about myself that I didn't realize. And they, uh, I have to work with them and try to keep them on their game. But yeah, that's that fantastic. That's amazing. It was amazing. 
It was, it was a lot. I think the best was when I came across ESD because they were up there cleaning. They were looking at me like, who are you? And, and you could tell that they were talking to each other, wanting to call security. I, they kept looking over at me and I was trying to get myself ready. And I kept looking over at them and they were like, why is this person, this guy on the floor of an outpatient unit and no one is here? So I walked up to them and I went, hi, before you call security. And they both leaned back like this. And I went, I am security. And I held up my badge and the woman looks at me and she goes, Oh, you the, she goes like this. And I go, yeah, the big hair. I go, it's under the hat. right now. She goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Even they know you. It was me. She goes, I knew. And I said, it's me. I said, it's all good. I told them what I was doing. And then they left the floor and let me run the drill. So it was good. It's amazing. Fantastic. So Annie, I guess as clinicians, how can we help you and your team do your job? You're everywhere in the hospital and everyone knows you. Honestly, when you said what, 26 security officers at one time, I feel like they're all in the emergency department. So who's covering the rest of the house? I think um, communication is key. It really is. Communication is key. I think that, you know, we've gone through debriefs at times and we have found that we need to be able to identify who's taking the lead. We are to take our direction from clinical staff. We have been drilling that into the officers since day one that, you know what, clinical staff tells you if a nurse says this is what's going down, this is what's happening. Okay. Mm -hmm. Even though you may not agree with it, they're calling the shots and you're acting accordingly, obviously, unless, of course, imminent danger. But certain circumstances may require you to act on your own because you know either you're going to get hurt, someone else is going to get hurt, and it requires you to act on your own. But identifying that point person that's sort of taking the lead when we do respond to collaborate with you on a, a response of whatever kind it may be, tell us who we need to turn to, or, Hey, I'm, I'm the one that's going to help you out here. I'm the supervisor. I'm the charge nurse. I'm going to take point here on this. Our supervisors will do the same. Hey, I'm the supervisor. Or I tell them to look for the red stripe. Most of them know, but we also know that there are some night shift people that don't get that kind of training that I've been running for day and evening. And it's woken me up thinking that there might be some night shift teams that may want to meet me and may want to, you know, get a little training to understand about how the officers respond and maybe ask some questions of us um, of what we can do to support you best too, because I think it's a, it's a team effort Mm -hmm. Um, and really kind of communicating us and letting us know that, you know, this is what you're looking for. This is what we need to do. How can we help you and keep you safe? Mm-hmm. Um, what is it you need from us? I mean, we are we are support services. And I look at that word as support because that's what it is. We're here to support you. You're here to support us um, in that way. But we're primarily there to kind of make sure that we can be that buffer when you need it. We're seeing a lot of a lot of aggressive behavior and it's it's mm-hmm. taxing. Mm-hmm. It really is on you guys as well. I mean, you guys do God's work out there. It's crazy when I watch some of the, the the clinicians working and, you know, I might be on standby um, and just to share a story of, of just being on a, a watch for an end of life situation where my, my heart is, is hurting because I'm a, I'm a parent and I'm, I'm wanting to connect with that parent and I'm, I'm wanting to connect with this family, but also on the other side, I'm looking here and here comes a, an infant being wheeled up from the OR with a successful operation. And I'm thinking, this is just twofold here. I'm I'm trying to organize my emotions right now and stand stoic and do my job, but want to just, you know, cry at times and look at what you folks do and and awe of of the work that comes out of that place and and being mindful that we're we're part of that team. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell those officers. I go, you may not be able to do open heart surgery, but that surgeon can't do your job either. So, you know, right. accept it as you are valuable. And, and it takes all of us to do a successful, successful visit for these yeah. families. Mm-hmm. So. I think you nailed it, Annie, with talking about communication. I think about like when we have medical emergencies and you hit the code light and people come, it's how crucial it is to have like a leader, have like either a charge nurse or somebody speak up to responding and be able to quickly do it like an SBAR, quickly be able to do like a one liner, what's going yeah. on. So yeah. the responding people, uh, you don't have chaos immediately. Yeah. And yeah, I see you got to figure, yeah, you figure yeah. elopements and things like that. Yeah. You know? For our unit, a lot of times it almost feels like we're waiting for the cavalry to come. Like we have this crisis and everybody's in such it's a state of escalation, you know, whether it's parents struggling or one of our patients uh, either eloping or just, you know, dysregulated and just having a hard time coming down. Everybody's like, ah, oh, security's here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but then they back up. <laughs> and yeah. And like, the, 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 the key, what, the key piece is, you, you know, we can't expect that your offices are going to know how to jump in and how to react if there's not any direction provided or background for why we called you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's how it helps us because we, we want to help. We want to jump in and we come in and you have to understand it's hard for people to understand on the receiving end of that panic button. You guys hear nothing. You just press a button. Mm -hmm. We get the attention, all units, attention, all units, your hair goes up, you know, you you're Mm -hmm. instantly, that's me. What's going on? And you know, when you hear that 1040, we know what that means. We know what that means sometimes. And we never respond to one as if it's an accident. We right. never, we never go there and just sort of meander our way in. We get there. And the first officer on scene has to radio back to the team. Hey, step it up. It's actual or stand down. It was a mistake. It's accidental. We'll do a reset. We'll call it in the base and get it reset and back to normal again. But, you know, that's the reason why we test those on a regular basis. And and with (laughs) with the hail building coming in. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. So (laughs) we are on the verge of opening this brand new facility. And it's just amazing to to know. But I'm just thinking about the impact this is going to have on you and your staff. Yeah. More steps, (laughs) more steps, more steps, more steps, more step. I can tell that there's a lot and and several of them because of how many staff we have. A few of our supervisor teams have gone through today. They did a mock code blue, which was nice. Um, They were able to kind of be active and involved because we want to see what it's going to be like for us to get to Mm -hmm. that extra mile that we have to take because it is off the grid for us. And and we're trying to learn the building. And really what it's going to be is me kind of working with each officer going, it's time for you to go get lost in hail. <laughs> go get lost in hail. Hail, I said. <laughs> and then go, go get lost and have fun and, and, and get a rhythm of what it's going to be like. And so that's why, I mean, I have another extra 140 something panic buttons that I got to go find over there. And so what it will be is sort of making my way around so that now I've matched the whole 609 panic buttons children's and tested all of them successfully every quarter. Wow. Yeah. I I think what you said is just, it's striking me how important it is to communicate. Because like you said, when your officers show up at a scene, they have no idea what's happening. And, you know, the staff that's maybe been there and you you know know why you hit the panic button, right? you know, (laughs) what's going on and you just assume people coming in also know what's going on, but that's not the case. Right. And sometimes timing is of the essence. I mean, and, and I tell people, I mean, I don't know if, if a clinician is getting assaulted. 
I don't know if the patient has left their room and they're beelining down a stairwell right now. Usually what will happen is, and as you guys may or may not know, that your panic buttons are tied to extensions. So operations will usually try to call and get some information about that panic button. What happened? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And that way they can radio to us to let us know. If we know it's an elopement, they can turn the cameras on and keep track of what's going on and help us from the eyes and ears from above telling us what stairwells and what doors to think about. Um, so that helps us out a lot. Yeah. So you definitely have a very stressful job. I know you you smile and laugh your way through <laughs> it, and which is amazing to me. But how do you keep your work-life balance? I, I do the gym. I'm in the gym. My kids. They're at an age now. Um, is, <laughs> I think I'm father's probably laughing at 18 and 20. Mm-hmm. My control freak and my rule breaker in that order. And uh, I think it, it's just finding a way to connect with them and, and sort of moving them on to the next phases in their life. My youngest is graduating this year mm-hmm. from high school. It's been a rough couple years for her in high school because of all of the craziness that goes on there. My oldest is in her second year at Framingham State. She was a kiddo of the no graduation, no prom, right in the middle of the pandemic class of 2020. So, you know, and it's just, it's allowing me now to kind of regroup and come back in with them. So whether it's, you know, uh, we all for Christmas, the whole family got the, the comfy uh, Sherpa sweaters that we wear. So we all look like Eskimos sitting on the, car, on the couch at night watching Netflix with a pizza to go, you know, something just... Mm-hmm. Family time, bringing family time back because I feel like, you know, it gets lost. And I'm, I promised myself that I would try to find at least one night a week to make it family night where I just find, put something on hold, guys, and just hang out for a little while and, mm-hmm. and regroup again. Music, music's a big one for me. Yeah, Talking. tell us what's on your playlist. You're, you have like a day, you go to the gym. What's your go-to song? Oh, God, it can get really, it can get crazy. I, I, I go back to the 80s. I am such an 80s kid through and through. I always said you can take the kid out of the 80s. You just can't take the 80s out of the kid. If I get one more Farrah Fawcett comment in that lobby, I'm, I'm going to fall to the floor. <laughs> I have a multi-genre list. I, I grew up on classical. I know that's going to sound funny to you guys. I played at the Cape Cod Conservatory of Music. I was a piano player for nine years. Um, so I grew up on classical. And then I played oboe for four years which was a unique instrument because the band really, they, they felt in school that I really had a, a music ear. So they felt like the only certain people could pick that instrument up and play it and hear what they're supposed to. So I was blessed to have my oboe instructor was the first chair in the Cape Cod Symphony Orchestra. I'll never forget her. She was amazing. So one week we would have a lesson and then the other week we'd learn how to make reads because the reeds for an oboe were expensive and they were, you know, easy to make. So she would teach me how to make my own. Um, And then I did clarinet for another five years. So music is in my soul. Um, So it doesn't matter what it is. I'm a big country kid when I'm cooking at home, Uh, little, little eighties and nineties rock when I'm at the, at the gym, trying to blast some things out there. And, and I think, you know, just some dance music when you just want to be crazy and be outside with the dog and, and run her around the backyard or barbecues or anything goes for me. I still play. Well, you know, and you laugh because, you know, my mother now is coming down because she knows when I play by ear, I haven't played for years. I, when my mother passed away, I had to move all of her stuff from Florida here. I was her power of attorney. So I brought everything here. Her piano was the one thing I couldn't let go of. And it's still in my garage up against the wall and I'm trying to figure out like how do you 
it was hell to move that thing because pianos are so heavy. <laughs> so you laugh, but like last week I was going through the mall with my daughter and they have this big setup of Yamaha pianos in the middle of the Natick mall. So we were going through, it was closing hour. The mall was closed. I was just going to pick up my other daughter at Paxton. So, you know me, I went over and I looked around for security and I, I opened one up and I sat down and just started playing, you know, people were like coming out of there with like kiosks going, wow, someone's playing music. What's going on? <laughs> they, they hear the Moonlight Sonata and they're like, what? <laughs> did you grow up down the Cape? I did. I grew up in Dennis. Oh, all right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I was a Cape Cod girl and uh, oh. that's, uh, it was a lot of fun. My father moved me down and out to this day, you know, doing deep sea clamming <laughs> at four in the morning when the ocean was like 20 below. My father's like, oh my God, it's cool. It's not cold. It's refreshing. Get in. No, I loved it. It was, that was the highlight and growing up in the Cape. And then I moved to, moved to Brookline, went to high school. Awesome. Gotcha. Do you still get down there? I do. I still, I try to, that's definitely where I'm going to take my father's ashes. Yeah. There's, there's so much history for me down there. You know, I spent all my elementary and middle school years and then almost started at high school there and then moved to, but I I spent about six months with my mom in England because before I moved to to high school, my mother swapped houses with her friends. So I had to go to school in England. Can you imagine me in England? That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yep. That's amazing. Oh, you love the stories from that. I, I thought it was funny because they always said, have a nice day. They just figured we all say, have a nice day. So every time I pass them, they'd be like, hey, Danny, have a nice day. <laughs> like that. And I'm like, no. I have to ask you, Annie, as a woman leader in the hospital, what advice do you have for someone who also might be wanting to follow in your footsteps? Believe in yourself. Something my grandmother always said to me a long time ago, and it was always funny because when she said it, I never really thought about it. She was like, you know, you weren't put on this earth to fit in. She said, you were put on this earth to stand out. I thought about that quote from my grandmother, and I thought that was just something a grandmother would say to her granddaughter. And I thought, I'm going to run with that because I, I, I want to be that person that people can come to, that I want you to be able to look right at my face and no, if I don't have the answer, I have the ability of finding you that answer, or I have the ability of, of helping somehow. And so I think what I would tell any female who's trying to, to move up, hold your ground, hold your ground and know your self-worth and never doubt yourself for a second, regardless of what people say, trust your instincts and trust your true value. And, and when you have that confidence, you will, you will radiate that and you will sit down at a table and you will tell people you know, I might be at a cotton ball factory and I'm bringing in my own cotton ball. And let me tell you why my cotton ball is uniquely different than yours. And having that gift of gab to sit down with someone and have that conversation to at least portray that confidence to say, I'm going to stand out and I'm going to fight for what I feel I deserve. Um, so I really want women to feel feel empowered um, and do things that they really, they really feel that they've got the ability to do because there's nothing that you can't do. We are machines. And I, being a mother, I've learned that, that work-life balance of motherhood, but also being a woman in a, in a managerial kind of role. Um, I look to my team and I, and I love watching these officers do what they do. And I always want to be that person. And I tell them, if there's ever a reason that I can give you something that helps you move on to your next step, come to me. Tell me that, that, that I'm that person that you need and I'll write you that letter or I'll do what I need to do to see you move on to where you need to go or I'll mentor you and coach you with what I feel, you know, you might need to do that. 
Um, it really helps when you have someone in your back pocket like that and they know they can turn to and talk to. And there's nothing I would turn anyone away for. I'm, I have an open door all the time. And I think that that helps people too, is knowing that, you know, come in and talk to me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I may or may not have time. And if I don't, I'll, I'll tell you to come back and we're, we're going to finish up where we left off because I really feel like, you know, having that person there that you can bounce off of. And then especially someone in a female position is, is helpful. I find at times when I'm in a, being a fidelity and coming from corporate America and moving over to healthcare, I'm in a predominantly women environment. Sorry, guys. The reality <laughs> is that, you know, and, and so that's why I, I have used that as my leverage when I publicly speak, when I train, when I meet people, um, hearing from a woman and talking to a woman, you build credibility for each other. We empower each other and we make each other feel stronger. Whether it's my women's self-defense classes, whether it's training, whether it's something I do, it's just something where I feel like, you know, we empower each other and uh, we can definitely lay each other. And light shine each other's crowns. That's what I yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> it's legit. Like we just shine each other's crowns. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Annie, what would you like your legacy at Children's to be? <laughs> I think, as I told Dick Argus, I said, you know, every day, if I'm making a difference in someone's life there, I've done my job, whether it be small or, or huge, um, whether it be, you know, just that one kiddo that reminds me that wants a high five. You know, um, I get some of the the craziest responses from kids and things like that. So I... I want to feel like I've made a difference in someone's life there at that hospital. Um, and knowing that I did, I guess, is what makes me you know, feel good and, and humbles me because I know that that's what I set out to do each and every day. And you get these highs and these hugs. And, and I love the fact that we're starting to see people get closer again um, because I'm a very touchy feely person myself. So when people come up and they just want to give me a hug, I'm like, go ahead, bring it in. You know, but a legacy, it's hard to say. I really don't feel like I've been there long enough. I probably may have a better answer if I got a few more years under my belt, but I, I feel like I'm well on my way to setting a tone there. I, I hope that people know who I am um, and know what I do there and, and know what I can do there. Um, and that, you know, where the world comes for answers and, and the lobby boss right there who's waiting there for you when you walk in to go, hey, what can I do? The lobby boss. That's what that, yeah, now it's the lobby boss. That's what Dick Argus called me. He's like, you're the the lobby boss. I have to say, Annie, you are such an inspiration. You're always smiling, Mm -hmm. always happy, and you're always putting patients and families first. And it's just an incredible honor to really be your colleague and (laughs) to watch the work that you do. I don't know how you do it day in and day out, but it's just incredible to me. And, you know, it speaks a lot to the institution as well for supporting you and your team, which your role is just so important. I'm so grateful you guys took the time to find me today. This is awesome. Mm. Annie, I have to say, this was an amazing experience for me, just getting to know you. And you know, (laughs) you do radiate positivity. I have to say, when you walk in and see your face, you know, you probably have one of the toughest jobs in the hospital with uh, dealing with some of the, you know, people that are stressed or, you know, just... You know, there you, you got to look. People are anxious. There's stress coming to our yeah. hospital, yeah. and to be able to meet them with the positivity has to make yeah. a difference. Yeah, it. it thank you. It, it, it does. You know, I think you just kind of have to learn whether or not you're you're in mom mode or you're just kind of. I think it's safe to say everyone walking in there doesn't want to be there. <laughs> you know, they they realize they have to be there for some reason or another, and and it's important to recognize that. And I think the masks have really kind of taught 
me to also teach the officers. I've, I, you know, I always had a big thing. And part of my training was eye contact mm-hmm. and, and the younger generations don't do it well because they, they socially awkward. It's not something they're comfortable doing, but you don't have anything else to work with other than the eyes right now. So you have to learn to read people when they're presenting themselves in front of you to say, you look stressed, you look upset, you look angry. Um, you look sad, you know, what, what can I do? You look frazzled, you know, you, <laughs> you had that deer cotton headlights look, or you look like you want to just take that boss of ass and stick it down my throat. Here's a mask. <laughs> Wear your mask. <laughs> yeah. I already have a mask. I know, but our mask is better. And it's like a breathman. You never refuse one here. Have another one, you know, mm-hmm. divide and conquer. Any, if our listeners want to reach out to you for more, yeah, how can they contact you? Well, that's always the ongoing joke because my kids, I'm like, I'm not an Insta snap tweet face kid. I don't think I've ever been on Facebook. I don't have Instagram or Snapchat. Um, I am on Twitter and I'm also on LinkedIn though. Um, I do keep a lot of contacts now at Children's and from my past at Fidelity um, on LinkedIn. But you can also find me down in the badging office at the, the main campus Come in, stop by. I'm the one that has the crazy wall of anything and everything fun and funny to read, especially if you're a parent and you're waiting for a badge and you're like, oh, my day begins on caffeine. You know, (laughs) I drink coffee for your protection is the one they usually like the best. But um, yeah, come in and just, you know, say hello in the badging office or I'm in the lobby. Stop down Mm -hmm. in the lobby. Call me up if you need anything that you want some one on one time. If something is bothering you. I've had a lot of clinicians. Females will call me if there's something going on that they want personal and private and want to know how to deal with it. Um, because the result is we all have private lives outside of here. And yeah. what I do open up is letting people know that you can talk to security if you want it to maintain confidential. It's my job. My job is to get up there and hold that confidentiality, but also let you know that we've got your back while you're at work because you have a right to feel safe at work too. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic, Annie. Annie, thank you so much for joining us and for spending time today with us on Small Talk. We really appreciate your time, your expertise, and your smile. So thank you so much. And we look forward to working with you. Thank you so, so much. I so appreciate you guys. And I I look forward to so many more years of working together. This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk podcast.